of an eye. Life stories of trauma, loss, awakenings, and epiphanies. Beginning with one mom's journal entries recorded in real time of a catastrophic diving accident, rendering her teenage son paralyzed from the neck down and the courageous fight to save his life. Told through unedited text and journal entries and inspiring guest interviews, Blink of an Eye will take you on a powerful journey of advocacy and hope and an unvarnished look at the true nature of our relationships and interconnectedness in the face of an event that changes everything. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Hello, dear ones. Did you know our podcast sponsor, the nonprofit Blink of an Eye, and its parent, I See That, the Integrative Center for Trauma Healing, Advocacy, and Transformation, are on social media? You can find out more about the Blink of an Eye initiatives and learn more about the science of trauma at their annual online summit, November 3rd, 2022, as well as build community with others in the spinal cord injury and trauma healing space by following www.blinkofaneye.org or I See That on Instagram at I See That Nonprofit, spelled I C T H A T Nonprofit, and on Facebook at the URL www.facebook.com backslash ic.that.org. Links to those platforms will be in the show notes. I am thrilled about the Blink of an Eye team that is providing emotional, spiritual, and mental health support, as well as logistical and medical navigation assistance for spinal cord injury families in the first 30 days of crisis as they work with ICU and hospital staff to begin to recalibrate their lives. www.blinkofaneye.org If you know of a spinal cord injured family in the crisis hours and days following injury, please connect them to www.blinkofaneye.org We are so grateful to our donors and volunteers. If you are interested in making a difference in the lives of those in SCI trauma, you too can be a part of the Blink of an Eye Family Support and Navigation Team effort as they are recruiting experts in trauma and trauma healing, as well as Blink of an Eye listeners who care about other people to be spiritual warriors, praying specifically for SCI families whom the Blink of an Eye team is working with. They are also recruiting artists and letter writers for their Hope Lifters campaign who send letters of inspiration and encouragement to spinal cord injury families in crisis. If this ministry is calling out to you, go to blinkofaneye.org or send me an email at louise at blinkofaneyepodcast.com. Now, for today's Blink of an Eye story episode. In our last episode, you had a glimpse of the start of Archer's rehab. Our excitement, our anticipation, 
Archer's animated face. Oh, how his face lit up. All so good. Where we were in my family and friends' updates was day 48. 48 days to finally get to rehab. Days, yeah. Day, day three, day 10, day 42. Each day was marked by a number. That was how I kept track of the time, how I kept track of our life without getting lost, without losing hope. The experience since injury had become all-consuming, all-constant, seemingly never-ending intensity. Oh, yes, if you've ever been in an intense, arduous situation for a long period of time, and I'm sure many of you have, you might relate to the constant pressure cooker of the sheer intensity of what you have to keep track of in a hospital room as well as what you need to manage and stay on top of outside the hospital room, like your family and life back home. Maybe you wondered if you could keep track of it all, keep up, or maybe not. Well, for me, as I look back, there was no time to be concerned about whether I could or not. It was one foot in front of the other. Keep ahead, stay alert, keep going. That's perhaps what it was like for you too, when you can't afford to stop and slow down or think otherwise. At any given time throughout the day, I would look down at my phone and have 15 to 50 different text messages relating to the many balls in the air. It was actually crazy because any given day, those balls ranged from sending in parental consent forms for Dutch for field trips at his school and sports practices to follow-ups with the catastrophic insurance agent monitoring us closely to just getting back to well-meaning friends. A number of those balls were what I felt I also could not share with you then. I was afraid to share all that was happening because I had a new set of fears, a different set of fears. You'll hear about them in the episode today. You might be wondering what I would have been afraid of since it seemed in the last six weeks of life or death updates I had laid it all out. But even though my bedside updates were written in real time, unvarnished and unedited, there was more. There were other balls in the air that weighed heavily on me that I had to keep private for confidential reasons. A potential lawsuit the surfers in Cape May were asking us to bring against the Army Corps of Engineers and the United States government related to the unnatural shore breaks from a 20-year beach replenishment project. Insurance appeals I had to learn about and initiate. My own mediation work and the management 
of a very delicate and then confidential mediation matter. I had been assigned by the chief judge in Kentucky and my careful, almost stealthy planning for how and when I would steal away time from Archer's bedside in the middle of the night, which I was loath to do, to work. My family needed me to continue to work. And there were the strains on my marriage. But the ball that was niggling at me the most was how I could get home to see our youngest son, Dutch. He had started seventh grade. It crushed me that I wasn't there to see him in his uniform on his first day of school and take the photo in front of our house, under the tree, like I always did, every year, for all the kids. But not this year. I wasn't even there to make sure he had a uniform that fit him and tell him what bin I had the hand-me-down uniforms in, which I would store from the bigger boys for when he would grow into them. When he entered the third floor ICU at Atlantic Air a couple weeks ago, coming home from camp, my breath was taken away at how tall he seemed, like he shot up in the two months he was away up in Maine. I suspected that he was taller than his brothers at this age, even Archer. I felt my eyes stinging, thinking about this as another two weeks had gone by now in Atlanta where I hadn't seen him or been around to take care of him. I knew I was preoccupied with Archer, but I was equally preoccupied with how to get home to see Dutch. So I did a quick round trip to Baltimore. I did. I had to. I never told you about my going home or these other things in the podcast story because I followed the events noted in the family and friends updates, what so many of you called the Archer blogs, which I wrote bedside in the middle of the night. But now you know other matters that I was doing in the middle of the night by the glow of Archer's monitors. Well, since that time, I discovered a whole lot of phone notes typed into the phone notepad, which I'll now share with you to give you a more complete picture. I figured you may have noticed by the dates and the days that a number of days were missing. Well, they weren't really missing. It's just that seven years later, I feel I can tell you about them now. Sort of safe enough, you know? Welcome to Season 3, Episode 12, Going Home, Part 1. I'll fill in the gaps between the family and friends updates for this episode, as well as future episodes. I'll share with you in the companion, Episode 13, Going Home, 
part two, what I did not write about because it was so personal and I felt at the time potentially controversial if I shared it. But that will be for next time and for you to decide. For today, Going Home Part 1, you will hear not only some sad personal journal notes, some of which are also very intimate, as I would often talk with God in the middle of the night and write to Him. But I'll share a never-sent Archer blog and texts, and you will also hear excerpts of interviews from a few of the extraordinary people back in Baltimore who truly cared for us. It did take a village, and that village was very real for us. Yes, it was a village taking care of our family. It was. So settle in, take a deep breath, and anticipate the transformative journey that is to come. Here we go. A series of personal journal notes written on my phone. Where does the time go? Why are we on this journey? What am I to learn, Lord? What is happening to our family? I never imagined this could happen. I thought our end goal in the ICU was day five or day seven because that is what they said, Lord. That is what they told me on the first or second day that Archer would be in the hospital for five or seven days and then on to rehab for four to six weeks. I counted the days. I thought we would get back to our lives after the four to six weeks of rehab and that Archer would walk again. It's day 38. How much longer? Even with all these setbacks, four to six weeks in rehab and then beginning use of some part of his hands and legs, that is still the standard, right? I know it's hard work. I believe in Archer, even if they don't. But I thought he would be back starting high school, his junior year now, maybe missing a week or two or three. Okay, maybe missing most of his soccer season, but still on the sidelines with his team. How could I have been so wrong, Lord? How could I have been so wrong? Personal journal note. After what happened at Atlanticare, I don't think I trust the machines or all the medications. I'm aware of how quickly I judge the medical staff and separate out those who are capable and caring 
versus the ones who are not on our team. It's like that. And I do it in a nanosecond. I wish I didn't. We don't have time for average or just going through the motions. We've got to get out of rehab. Please help me not be judgmental. Personal journal note. A nurse told me to sleep as I stared at the monitors. I told her I believe that if I study close enough and understand the monitors and the medicine, I can help them get Archer off the ventilator and he can breathe on his own. She told me, some people don't get off and once they're on for a few weeks, they just don't have the wheel. What does she said? She doesn't know Archer. But it did scare me, Lord. Maybe his body is getting used to the mechanical air machine. Personal journal note. I feel bad I haven't written my family in a while. I'm tired. I write quietly bedside to Archer most of the night, every night, in the dark, well, in the faint, soft glow of the many monitors tracking Archer's bodily functions. But I don't think these monitors are the full picture of his life. I think of many things as I stare at the numbers in the soft blue light every night. I feel like a sentinel on watch duty. It makes my eyes sting sometimes, but I don't want to fall asleep on him. This quiet time allows me time to pray. I feel very close to God, especially in the quiet of the nights. I am keeping three journals now. The medical one, one for my family and friends updates, and one that I need to clear my head or start random or unfinished thoughts and things I need to remember to do. Personal journal note. The Shepherd medical team declared Archer to be too weak to move out of their ICU into rehab. Too weak. I can't explain the heaviness of this. I called Billy, and I think we were both crumpling. It's crushing news. I don't even want to give it words. I'm afraid to give it words as it might make it so. I have felt they were going to send us home, but I can't let that happen. They have to see Archer's potential. Personal 
personal journal note. There is both a lot of commotion and a lot of leaving us alone here. But Billy's coming. When Lillian and I went ahead and set up Archer's rehab room on the day the insurance had approved it, I think it was fortunate we did that. Like we staked out a claim. The beds here are scarce. That is our bed. We just have to get there. Personal journal note. Is it my naivete? I still have no frame of reference. It's unsettling because I don't feel the Shepherd Center understands Archer's situation. I know they're wonderful, but I don't think they know what to do. We need someone who understands Archer's lungs. Please, Lord, please help us all. I'm so scared. I feel so up and down about all of this. And I feel vigilant all the time. I walk the halls every once in a while at night and watch the quadriplegics in the gym during the day through the doors when it opens. I feel we got lucky to be here at Shepherd, this high caliber facility. I look at their promotions on the walls. I want Archer up there. They do good work. We just need to get out of their ICU. We need to be wherever we can for a full-on focus on Archer's lungs. They're not distractions. They are the main event. Personal journal note. It's clear to me Shepard wants stars. They allow in those they know they can rehab. I don't think they take too many risks, actually. They have a reputation to keep. I would want star potential, too. Personal journal note. Shepard doesn't want to fail. They are failing with Archer. It's painful for all of us. But where would we go? Personal journal note. I can just tell by the tone of voice that Archer is not what they place their bet on. Not the boy they thought they had invited to their facility. And that's just it. We are here at their pleasure. We are guests here. And I feel that. I feel they are about to ask us to leave. 
I'm afraid to ask for a second opinion. I need to ask for a second opinion. It's just like at Atlanticare. We need opinions outside the facility too. But who else is more knowledgeable than the Shepherd Center? It's not Archer's path, Lord, right? To die before he begins? It just isn't. I feel that. These are just bumps in the road. Please don't give up on him, Shepherd. Please. If I just do nothing, they may ship us out. I can't put Archer at risk for being discharged, though. But if I question what they're doing, that might push us out, too. But my not questioning things might also place him at risk. I know there is a way for him to progress. We just need to find it. It also scares me that he could die at any minute. He does well for a few hours or a half a day, and then he crashes. There must be something we don't know here that is known out there. Personal journal note. I met a guy rehabbing. He told me they sent someone home from the rehab. He said, some guys just don't have what it takes to be here. I heard that tone of winners and losers. I want them to see Archer's potential. I want us to please Archer's rehab doctor. I want them to see the Archer I see. I overheard her saying in the hallway to a tech that Archer should have been off a ventilator by now and that the effort might not be there. Effort? I feel like she is so not on our team. She knows nothing of Archer and of effort. Does she think Archer should somehow be stronger? I can't get this off my mind. I think I'm going crazy. What I wanted them to do was to change their focus to healing Archer's lungs. I wanted that as the rehab goal. He could then fully participate in what they offered in the gym. But how do you get someone to understand? I asked for another family conference. I know I have to begin with understanding their perspective first. I know that. I believe they are the best alternative we have to having the expertise we need to help us heal his lungs. I know they dislike the family conferences. I don't know why. Perhaps because they're not the norm. Okay. Perhaps because I suspect they take a lot of coordination. I get that. 
but I feel the resistance. And I saw the look on their faces. I asked for one two days ago and haven't heard. It's the only way to stay ahead and to bridge the two worlds of ICU and rehab. Before I share with you another personal journal note, I want to tell you what a friend of mine, Scott Chesney, who has paraplegia, says when he explains spinal cord injury paralysis to people. Make a fist. Try it. Yeah, go ahead. Make a fist. Now, place it on a table with your palm facing down on the table and press down. Now, extend your ring finger. Try to lift that ring finger off the table without lifting your hand, wrist, or other fingers. That's what paralysis from spinal cord injury is like. No matter how hard you try, it's not physically possible. Couldn't Dr. Elmers see that? On the one hand, I didn't believe that, though. I mean, it was like that. It's a really good analogy. But did it have to be like that forever? I remember wondering if Archer's lungs were victims of that same paralysis, too so that no matter how hard the lung machines blew in air, and no matter how much he endured with the deep lung suctionings, they would not clear out. They would not work on their own, because they couldn't. I didn't know, but I couldn't begin to believe that possibility. I believed Archer would breathe on his own, It was just a matter of time. And I believe he would walk again. Family and Friends Update, Day 39. Not Sent. To all my friends, I feel like I am walking on eggshells here but I can't tell you because I don't want to jeopardize anything. I felt fierce at Atlanticare, like Archer and I would roar together. But here, the very people we are so dependent on for our child's life and well-being may reject us, and I think they can. I feel paralyzed. also really need to replenish for my own fortitude. I need to sit in quiet and let my body tell me what I need and what I need to do, which may be nothing at the moment, although the urgency I feel is very real. I reached out to the Atlanta Angels to help me find a new set of healers for me, 
honestly, like my healing circle at home. I also asked a few others here for referrals. I told them I was looking for a cranial sacral release massage therapist and a muscle response tester, but no one had ever heard of such people. I'm asking you if you know of anyone here in Atlanta. I'm also out of supplements and haven't had a haircut in well over two months. <laughs> I need some help. Sending love. Personal journal note. I find myself worrying about Dutch being at home and something bad happening to him. I don't know what Billy is doing at home. The kids say they don't see him. I feel I'm worrying about things I've never been worried about before. Never had to be worried about before. Every time Billy and I talk, it doesn't go well. He is overwhelmed at home, I know. We need to make an agenda for every call. There are so many decisions to make. He's running financial projections on the cost of Archer's care if he doesn't get better. Billy sounds awful. Archer is going to get better. But it's just really bad now. Billy and I are trying to figure out how we could trade places for a day or two. I need to see Dutch. Billy needs to see Archer. He says it's too hard. I know he is crushed. But he needs to come here. It would be good for him. I'm also worried about being robbed. If people know about Billy's and my comings and goings and when we're both not home. Someone I didn't even know wrote to me to tell me I should be careful. They told me they read my updates and I should not write about where I am or my plans. Gave me shivers. But I guess they're right. I would never want to post anything if it would jeopardize us in any way. Personal journal note. I keep having this little niggling voice, like that little white good angel on John Belushi's shoulder pushing him to do the right thing in Animal House, do you remember? Well, my little angel keeps nudging me to write everything down. I mean, I want to for Archer, so he might know someday what he went through. As stark and vivid as it all is, I know I won't remember it all to tell him. I'm tired, but it's also helping me. When I write, I feel I'm not going crazy. I know it's real if I write it all down as it happens. Please help me to continue doing this, God. Mm -hmm.
I live for the night to have the time to do this. But those precious hours in the night are now also full of a new round of deep, long suctionings. And then the two to three, maybe four hours I try to steal each night to work on that cloyber mediation case. I wonder now <laughs> how long a body can sustain sleep deprivation like this. But I'm also invigorated in a strange sort of way. I feel laser sharp focused on everything. Seven years later, I know now, of course, that this hyper-alertness is part of the trauma experience, and that the sustained, seemingly unending intensity of the days had me in a state of unceasing hypervigilance. It never occurred to me it would take a toll on my body. I had intensely been making plans with Billy on how I could come home for a day or two and how Billy would come to Atlanta so that at no time would Archer not have a parent by his side. We were looking up flights to make sure all the travel happened during the day while Dutch was at school. We had planned to literally be passing like ships in the night at the entrance to the Shepherd Center. The plan was for one of the Atlanta Angels to pick Billy up at the airport, bring him to Shepherd where I would be waiting bedside for him, to walk through Archer's door. I'd brief him on our status and then grab my little carry-on and race downstairs to be shuttled to the airport by the same angel waiting patiently for me in the circular drive. Yes, in the midst of all the heaviness of uncertainty, I flew home. It was September 13th, 2015. Personal journal note not written, but voiced while on my way to the airport. Hello, this is Louise Fipsemt driving with Mary McCune Dillon. Mary has just shown me the most amazing thing, how to voice text on my phone with this thing called Siri. And this is my practice note. I feel like I have just learned the greatest invention of all time. I boarded the Southwest airplane, headed for Baltimore. All I brought was my iPhone, my wallet, and a small bag. The only clothes I had were the clothes I had brought with me from New Jersey, one pair of shorts and one pair of white pants that I had been rotating every other day. I hadn't done a wash yet in two weeks, except for my underwear in the bathroom sink. The little bag was empty, as I anticipated, bringing back a couple more items, hoping we would be able to stay into the fall. While the days were still very warm in Atlanta, Archer's body still preferred a cold room. Although I didn't need to wear the North Face parka anymore, like I had in Atlantic City, I did wear, every day, a long-sleeved, purple, heather-colored cotton wrap that hung to my knees. It was a gift brought to me by another friend in Atlanta. She had arrived at the Shepherd Center unannounced, 
not that any notice was necessary. But it was so different from Atlantic Care, and that anyone could show up, check in, and come for a visit. I liked that about Shepard. It was a delightful surprise to see Lucy Bruce, and I was deeply touched, as she was the former wife of a dear UVA friend of ours, one of Billy's fraternity brothers, and I had been their divorce mediator. I'll never forget her standing in the doorway to Archer's room and her very unceremonious extension of her arm with the anthropology bag dangling from her hand for me to take. At the bottom of the bag crumpled in the bottom was the softest cotton wrap, still with all the tags on. As she, in her Lulu way, said, I thought you might need this. It was such an intimate, personal gift. I immediately threaded my arms through the long, skinny sleeves and let the rest fall to my sides. I had worn it every day since she brought it and even slept in it each night in the fold-out armchair. Now, on the southwest flight, I curled up in the window seat and draped the wrap around my legs and fell sound asleep all the way home to Baltimore. I knew sleep was important, and I knew I had been living on less and less sleep for the last six weeks. It seemed that even when I was resting and my eyes were closed, I was listening, as my ears were always tuned in to each beep of a monitor that reverberated throughout the room. But on this flight, I slept soundly for two hours, only to be awakened by the kind man sitting next to me, gently shaking my arm, telling me, we've landed. I was carried home in a taxi where we rode in silence. We pulled up the hill onto my road and I felt my heart lurch. The green, full branches of the large maples on my tree-lined city street seemed to stretch out welcoming me home. It was early evening on a beautiful September day in Baltimore. Dutch was not yet home from soccer practice. I couldn't wait to see him. As I stepped out of the taxi car in front of my house, I couldn't belief what met my eyes. Our yard was gorgeous. I mean, it was simply beautiful and took my breath away. We all have our homes, and for me, our home was truly our hearth. I had been concerned about safety and lights being kept on and our dog being cared for and the mail being picked up but I had not given any other attention to the rest of the upkeep and maintenance of the outside of our home. But there, in front of me like someone drew the sheet off the masterpiece painting for the grand opening, was our yard and home in all its glory. The yard was mowed and manicured 
the fall flowers were planted, the summer growth was pruned back, the ivy growing up all over the stucco was clipped. It was incredible. The juxtaposition of this unexpected surprise of home in stark contrast to the intense high alert days in the ICU was almost too much to take in. It was like a glimpse of heaven or something like that. Years later, on happenstance, I learned my dear friend and neighbor, Ellen Webb, recalled the scene as well. Here's an excerpt of an interview I had with Ellen who literally happened to be out on an early evening walk, passing my house. Ironically, I also saw her and a group of women the next morning out for their morning walk. And this is how it went. Do you remember that time? sure do you would come back to make sure that dutch was situated i think at gilman that's exactly no he actually was believe it or not seventh grade at the cathedral okay you were trying to situate him and, and i was walking with somebody and you came in with your car and you jumped out of the car and you took one look at your house and a bunch of people had cleaned it up and taken vines off and cleared up all the debris and you turned to us and Gave us big hugs. I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it. It was incredible. I had never had an experience or the feeling that I had to come home and see our home so taken care of. And what I what Louise doesn't know, and I didn't tell her at the time is that it had been Bruce and his family and he had contacted us and I think another family had gone over there and had the kids and the adults all swarming the place trying to figure out should we take this off, should we take this out and it was just one of those great moments in sports and all the kids participated and it was a hot day and everybody just did what they could because everybody wanted to do something you know you were you were pulling pulling hard and we all wanted to participate so that was, that was, and, and what I also remember about that day too is you were going through this amazing dark drama and the day was so beautiful. I remember that. It's the difference. I, it really was. That's what I remember too. And maybe that's what made it so amazing was that stark contrast to come home to this beauty and all the light. And I believe it was the Inslees and the Heberts. And it was all hands on deck, and it was it was spectacular. You're lucky you had any trees left because everybody wanted trees. <laughs> <laughs> there is so much that people can do for a family in crisis. Just being present and bringing normalcy was like a comfort blanket, and it was truly like the good citizen brigade had come to our house to do yard work. Yes, I was mesmerized and couldn't imagine how it had all happened. And you know, 
It was the kind of kindness one might not think about doing for someone in a crisis, as it might not matter, or perhaps might not be important. Yard work. Oh, but it is important. Everyone's home is so important. It's a reflection of our soul. It's a true act of service and stewardship to help someone care for their home. Here's an excerpt of an interview with Jim Hebert, one of our good friends back in Baltimore who was part of the Yard Brigade, who told me how it all came about. This kindness he and some other dads gave to our family while we were in crisis and in such a bad way. You gave so much of your physical time to our house and our home. I don't know if you remember, but the first time that I came back from the Shepherd Center, it was relatively early September, which felt like a, I'd been away for a million years because Dutch had already been in school for a couple weeks, like by himself. And I came home and our yard it was just beautiful it was mowed and everything was clipped and all my flowers because I love to garden so much were right. blooming and it was just so well cared for and I, it was like magic I didn't know who or what had happened or, or what it was right right well, uh, we were part of a, uh, of a team and I, you know, the way that, uh, I actually got involved was one of the many quarterbacks that you had to help coordinate, you know, the support that you needed. One of which was David Demuth. He was the one who was really instrumental in, in delegating. And he had informed me that you needed help with yard work. And I'm like, all right, I will do whatever needs to be done, David. I don't want to bother Louise directly. She's got a lot on her plate. You just tell me what I need to do or where I need to do. So I want to talk with you about what you even remember back then when you first heard about Archer's accident. We were up in Cape Cod right before it happened, and we had just come home. And we had heard, actually, from my son, Clayton, who was good friends with Jeffers Inslee. And he had informed us of what had happened, and we immediately got on the phone with you know, our network, some of the old MLC network that we knew that we knew were very tight with you and Billy just to find out if they had heard anything about it and we had gotten details. You know, when you speak of MLC, that's the Maryland Lacrosse Club. And it really infuses me in my from my heart through like all the cells in my body right now, just to think about a group of people one of a number of groups that, you know, any family might be involved with, but just those kinds of connections. In this case, a group of families whose boys were playing lacrosse together from the time when they were five, five and six. Remember, we started just the little guys and then the little girls. 
and all the way through until they were, you know, playing the playing the big leagues and the big tournaments. And yeah. um, so we've we we've traveled together metaphorically, and we've truly traveled together to these different places with our kids playing lacrosse while we spent time on the sidelines. And there was a lot of relationship established. Uh, believe me, it really was. It was almost like a family. And for us, uh, you know, Cardi and I had just moved to, I think, Baltimore in 2000. And we didn't really know many people here. And when we joined MLC, when I think it was Thomas and Archer were playing together during those early days, and Mike Morrill was coaching, Billy was coaching, I was helping out. And it was through those relationships that our network really began in uh, in Baltimore. And it was a family, a lot of really nice families that were in that program. And we all got to know each other. And I gravitated uh, to the Semp family because you have a very large family. I came from a large family up in Connecticut. I was the last of six kids, and I saw the mayhem going on in the Semp house with the Suburbans and the uh, the big family and the lacrosse equipment and, and the and forgotten like, sock and where's the yeah, cup and <laughs> exactly. I was the last of the Mohicans in my house, and it was mayhem in my house. And I said, I can relate to that family. I know what's going on there. So I, I felt like we had a bond uh, in some respects with your family, though you, you know many of your kids were older than ours, but we were we were tight with Archer and with Dutchie. So well, uh, I really remember that I still feel it. And I think those bonds, as I'm even thinking about your work and your travel, I remember the years when you were not working in Baltimore and having to commute and the, the many conversations that you and I had both as sort of working in these environments with folks and lamenting how just hard that was and right. what it meant to your family and the years that Billy was up in Boston and I was exactly. You know, yeah. And I remember that conversation, Billy and I, you know, we had a long conversation about what it was like to live away from home. And he said, in a lot of respects, it made your relationship with him even stronger from the, the, the time of separation. It was difficult. And I, I feel like, you know, for me at that time, when I was up in New York for four years and commuting back in the weekends, you know, I, I realized how strong my wife is for raising. She essentially raised the family while I was gone and made me appreciate my family even more my relationship with my wife. It was exactly what Billy and you had described. Uh, so I always remembered that. Yeah, it's um, you just never know these silver linings to situations that are arduous on a yep. family. But what you really discover that is so important and the recognition even that can come around around appreciation for just what it takes to to make a family like work well or well enough, you know, amidst the mayhem. Right. Well, the web of our relationships over time. And what makes a family work? Well, I don't think there's any one answer to such a huge, varied question. It's a whole host of things, and it's different for every family unit. Adversity and overcoming hardship together. Unconditional love. 
believing you are one? Good, supportive friends? Well, if one thing's for certain, a family survives difficulty for a variety of reasons. It takes a village. And I was so grateful for ours. The Yard Brigade, I'll never forget the sight. Yes, I'm sure the brain can exaggerate the euphoria when there has been such a sustained, intense time of high stakes, almost a mental deprivation. But the positive physical sensation that lingers in the body is very real. I had come home. Thank you, Jim, and thank you to all involved. As I walked down the front walk to our front door and entered our home, it was in stark contrast to the picture-perfect exterior. It was so empty, like no one lived there. There was little evidence that anyone did live there. I was struck that maybe no one did. Where was everyone? Where was the mail? The backpacks in the front hall, the shoes, the soccer equipment all over the front portico. The big pot on the stove we cooked in most nights. Where was it all? I had thought Billy was taking care of things at home. But I could see he wasn't. And it struck me how all-consuming my office and work and business must be that he was taking over in my absence. There was no way he could do it all. I walked back outside and headed down to St. Mary's Seminary to catch the end of Dutch's soccer practice. About halfway there, walking down the wide Roland Avenue, I caught a glimpse of someone in the far distance walking on the sidewalk in my direction. A couple blocks away, up the straight and clear road just having turned out of the seminary entrance, walking towards me. I knew it was Dutch in an instant, in the white shirt. I felt my heart leap and began waving my arms wildly as I raced down the sidewalk towards him, grinning from ear to ear. He began to race toward me, too. As we neared each other, he stopped abruptly. I did as well. He looked at me and then hung his head and slowly strolled toward me. I didn't know what to make of this. But it had been a while since I had seen him, and so much had happened. I held him close while his arms hung limply at his sides. I took his arms to wrap them around me, and as I did so, he slowly responded, hugging me back.
And then I felt his lean 12-year-old little body begin to tremble as he began to cry. We just stood there on Roland Avenue, tightly embracing and both of us weeping, weeping. I came to learn that Dutch didn't see Dad much, and I began to understand why. Dutch told me he had hardly been home himself, except when he'd walk home from school, but Dad wasn't there. As he said this, I felt my stomach drop, thinking he was walking the couple miles on his own without a carpool or person picking him up. Dutch told me he'd come home, change, go to soccer practice, take a shower, do his homework, and then Paula would pick him up after her work to drive him downtown, where he'd bring the dinner he said some nice person had dropped off and he'd spend the night on her couch down in the city in a row house she lived in with five other sorority sisters. In the morning, he said she'd drop him off back at the house on her way to work, where he'd go back to sleep or get ready for school. Then Kathy Lobo, the school nurse who lived in our neighborhood, would pick him up around 7.30 a.m. to take him to school. Another friend, Mary Jo Detterman, made his lunches and sent them to school with her daughter who was in a grade below Dutch. Lizzie, the sixth grader, would quietly pass a brown paper bag to Dutch, he said when no one was looking, containing a sandwich, chips, and an apple, and sometimes some Skittles or a chocolate bar. Dutch said Mrs. Detterman had asked him what his favorite thing was to eat, and he said candy. When Dutch told me that, I said, Touch! And then we had a good laugh. I had no idea of any of these logistics. As Dutch was catching me up, I was feeling a bit lightheaded thinking of all the people we were relying on who wove this delicate yet strong village net that was supporting and taking care of our youngest son, who had just turned 12. If you ever wonder how you could be helpful to a family in crisis, just think about what would be helpful to you. Transportation for your kids, food, laundry, money, gas cards, house cleaning, dog walking, gift certificates, and yard work. Oh yes, another family had adopted our dog, Coco, and their children were taking good care of her, I also learned. I just had no idea how overwhelmed Billy was taking care of my business while I was away. It was making sense to me why on every single occasion Billy and I had a conversation over the phone 
that he kept saying and beating the drum about how I needed to keep working. I needed to go work for a large firm and close my business and sell my building. He was an accountant by training, and I wondered myself how much longer we could go without my being hands-on to run my business or working full-time. Dutch and I both had a big next day, as my top priorities were to be normal and take Dutch to school and to be there, to pick him up after school and have a snack before I would fly back to Atlanta, timed so that he would be at soccer practice and one of the Atlanta Angels could be bedside while Billy and I were both in the air about the same time. Before Dutch and I called it a night and went to bed in our own beds that we both said we so looked forward to. Although Dutch did say he'd rather sleep at Paula's on the couch than be at home by himself. We both also said how good it would be to have one normal day together. After dropping Dutch off at school, I had made many plans. I was checking in on my office and trying to take care of as much business as I could, knowing my staff had piles of paper I had asked them to organize into ongoing clients, future clients, ongoing contracts, mediation training registrants, and keynote talk engagements, and some planned book signings. We had so many decisions to make. I wasn't going to just throw my business of almost 25 years out the window, but I knew I couldn't be available for most of it. Billy had also asked me to talk with my staff about how we would need to restructure. Billy was contemplating letting go all of the six new hires we had made right before Archer's accident who were going to help us build the new nonprofit to highlight relational leadership in politics and communities and to cover and uncover relational news in the United States and create a new form of news outlet we had both dreamed of doing. I knew he was scrambling with that. My meetings with staff started and ended with big hugs, and I knew they would be with me to see this through. I did say that there may be less of a need for what some of them did if I didn't get back to Baltimore soon and if Archer didn't progress, but we crossed that bridge when we got there. I did tell them if they felt they needed to look for another job, all I asked was that they let me know so I could have notice and figure out what to do. I said, I hope you don't but I understand if you do. How could I keep the income coming in for the overhead and payroll? It was just so much on Billy's and my plates to figure out all at once. It also worried me how often Billy kept saying, we need to sell your building, Louise. I had paid for this building over the years with mediation income, and we owned it free and clear. We had commercial tenants on the second floor, whom I visited as well before I left, because I knew they were concerned. And I saw Dano, too. He's my brother-in-law, who is mentally disabled, 
whom we created an apartment for up on the third floor. He was almost 60 and rather a big man, somewhat lumbering in his high-top socks, Coke-bottled glasses, wavy brown hair, and Orioles t-shirt. He gave me a big hug, per usual, and sort of patted me on the back. Dano has the intelligence quotient of about a five-year-old from a cord birth injury back in the day when no one talked about it. But his emotional intelligence is off the charts. Nevertheless, I had no idea if he had any inkling of the gravity of this change in our lives. That office building and the people in it and all that it represented meant the world to me. I left my office to then get my hair cut and after that to go see my nutritionist. I actually felt a new surge of hope as I could see how it was possible for me to come back relatively easily for a day, for one packed normal day, and switch places with Billy who could hold down the fort very well in Atlanta. It was also doable because we had the generosity of the donors of the frequent flyer miles, which Ned Inslee was master orchestrating for us. When I saw Dutch after school, he and I discussed this possibility, and together we hatched a plan that I would make this 24-hour round trip every 10 days for however long Archer and I stayed in Atlanta. I felt buoyant. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Life is so precious. Sending love. Hope for everything. Obtain everything. Love heals trauma. Thank you for tuning in to the Blink of an Eye story. Tune in next week for our companion Blink of an Eye Trauma Healing Learning 12. How dads can support trauma healing through yard duty with Jim Hebert. And don't forget, part two of Going Home, episode 13, will follow soon. You've been listening to Blink of an Eye. We ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Listen on our website, blinkofaneyepodcast.com, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is sponsored by Baltimore Mediation. For 28 years, Baltimore Mediation has served clients worldwide by facilitating negotiation breakthroughs, believing in their capacity for meaningful face-to-face dialogue. You can learn more at baltimoremediation.com.